What makes a college Christian? Does its curriculum require Bible and theology courses? Are all its professors Christians or are all its students? And what does it look like to be a Christian on a public university campus? Just a few of the questions we'll tackle on this week's episode of College for Christians. Welcome back. I'm Chris Garretts at Bethel University, joined by Sam Mulberry at Bethel University. So, Sam, last week we surveyed the very wide variety of Americans' 4,000-some colleges and universities, public and private, for and nonprofit, two- and four-year, large and small, broad in mission, and very narrow in scope. Today, we'll really dig into our podcast title and look more closely at colleges that have a specifically religious mission and identity. Uh, so, as always, uh, listeners, please let us know your questions, your comments, your, re- your reactions at channel3900 at gmail.com. Sam, I, I think we mostly want to get to the what we would call Christian colleges or maybe church-related colleges, uh, so private schools. But let's actually start with public colleges. Uh, and it might seem like that sector of higher ed would have very little to do with our subject today. Like, these are not Christian institutions. Uh, let me actually start back with your autobiography. You mm-hmm. came from Bethel, a Correct. Very explicitly Christian college. We'll get to its type later. And then went to the University of Minnesota for a master's program. Did you think about the relationship of religion and education on that campus? Was it simply not part of your world at the U? How did you think about that? Uh, I, it was It was not part of my world there. I didn't think super explicitly about it. For the most part, because I, for one thing, I was within a year already here. Mm-hmm. So it's like if I was thinking about myself in terms of spiritual development, things like this, I, I was already rooted back here. Um, but I did find it interesting in, um, in I remember a course on uh, women's history that I took there. Um, we got into multiple conversations about the role of religion and things like that. So, so in terms of what we were studying, it definitely was not like, that was somehow something we don't talk about or that wasn't a, I mean, so in terms of the, the, the academic field, we definitely talked about religion, especially I did immigration history mm-hmm. and religion and the church and things like that play a big role in that. Uh, but in terms of like connecting with campus institutions mm-hmm. uh, or, or, or parachurch things around the, uh, you know, around the university, I wasn't involved in yep. that stuff, but I think there were probably other even grad students that were. So let me give you a little bit of um, uh, kind of think through some of this. For listeners who uh, maybe you or maybe your child, whether we're talking to parents or students here, like you've heard us talk about Research One universities or Division One schools and like that's where you want to be or you want to be on a large campus in a big city, right? Um, or there's a very specific program that's only going to be offered at that kind of institution, but you also take your faith very seriously and you recognize like you're this is a time of spiritual development and, and you want community how do you think about this the, the history here is actually pretty interesting we 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 probably think well obviously a public university wouldn't have religious mission requirements identity that wasn't always true uh, i went to the college of william and mary which is the second oldest college in the united states it was it was chartered by king william and queen mary in 1693 for a long time it was an explicitly anglican institution with a divinity school with clergy and leadership roles uh, it, it assumed Christian identity. In fact, it's one of the reasons that Thomas Jefferson uh, designed what became the University of Virginia. He wanted a non-sectarian public uh, alternative, both to William and Mary, the Anglican school, but also by that point there were like Presbyterian colleges, then you get Methodists and Baptists later on. And that wasn't entirely unusual. Into the 19th century, you would get like land-grant schools, like the University of Michigan famously had a very kind of Christian culture to it and deeply Christian president at one point. 
Um, if you're really interested in this, read George Marsden, a great historian, wrote a book called The Soul of the American University. He talks about where this came from and then why it collapses in the 20th century. And I would say there are two reasons. One is, in the 20th century, you really do get an emerging sense that if it's really to be a public square that reflects... Um, a, a democratic government that does separate church and state, it's got to be a religiously plural environment. Yeah, like in the 19th century, it was really hard to be a Catholic, I think, at many of these campuses because the prevailing culture was kind of mainstream Protestantism, and it just assumed that. And, and so when we talk about Catholic colleges, they were founded originally um, as, as a kind of enclave apart from these larger schools. Um, and same for Jewish students or then other kinds of religious students. I'd say the other reason is that in the 19th century, a lot of even universities, like what we would think of, had some notion of they were there to engage in moral or character formation, right? That that was part of the mission of education. In the 20th century, it really became they're there to engage in the production of knowledge, research, advancing, and religion that is seen as possibly a hindrance to that. Um, and especially once you get past World War II, they're there to engage in the application of knowledge, to serve the needs of industry, to train workers for the labor force, right? And, and so that just pulls them in different directions. And, uh, and, and, and in some ways, it, it pushes religion out from a formerly privileged place. But religion has always been on those campuses. That never changes. And, and you hinted at some of that. Uh, some of these schools still have uh, like offices with different kinds of chaplains, not just one, but many kinds of religious clergy or even non-religious clergy in some places. Uh, some still have chapels of some sorts. Uh, they certainly teach about religion, although not indoctrinating people in religion. And then they also usually are spaces where religious ministries can operate. So that can be like at William & Mary, I had a little bit to do with the Baptist Student Association. Um, my father-in-law just retired from a Lutheran church in Iowa that was linked to the Lutheran campus ministry at a state university. Um, sometimes it's parachurch, right? Uh, evangelical organizations like InterVarsity or Campus Crusade for Christ or Fellowship of Christian Athletes, right? They're part of a public university's life, but they have to share that square with atheist groups and paganist groups and other kinds of organizations too. Uh, one phenomenon to look for if you're really interested in this uh, and you want to like be in that kind of environment but continue to think about how your faith relates to that, many of these schools will have something called a Christian Study Center. At the University of Minnesota, it's called Anselm House. And if it's not on campus, it's close to campus. Uh, usually like there are Christian faculty, Christian graduate students who are part of it. Some of them have journals that they publish. They host events. Anselm House is going to host Russell Moore, the Evangelical Baptist ethicist. Um, I think in April or May this year. And so you can look for those opportunities too. For me, it was really that I went to college and then I went to church. And it was just an extension of my upbringing. It was church is still part of life, but it's not really integral to education. And there's a part of me that thinks that's actually a pretty good model. I mean, it sometimes frustrates me on an explicitly Christian college campus that our students think of Bethel as their church and they're not part of a multi-generational, multi-social class, multi-ethnic, actual like just local church community and there can be problems with that too so yeah i also think there is this sense of like uh, as you're thinking about the school you want to go to you, you want to think about your personality mm -hmm. right are you going to grow more spiritually if you're surrounded by like-minded people mm -hmm. or are you going to grow more spiritually if you're 
sort of pushing yourself to say, actually, what I want to do is maybe I grew up in a world where I was surrounded by that. And actually, what I want to do is go into this place that's different. Because if you remember my story, Chris, I didn't come to a place that was familiar. I came to it was a Christian place. And, you know, I grew up in a Christian home, but it was a different brand. And maybe that that maybe that can serve as a little bit of a bridge here, too. But but, you know, it was like I am the type of person who is going to flourish more if I feel a little bit on the outside. I think that's a good preview of something we'll talk about next week. We're going to dedicate an entire episode to the nebulous concept of fit. And and part of what I want to suggest is fit might not be, I want to be with people just like me. Fit might actually be the opposite of that. And so maybe we should circle back to it then. Okay, so just a little bit about what religion looks like on public university campuses. Now let's turn to explicitly religious private colleges and universities. For example, last week we mentioned there are about 30-some of private four-year colleges and universities in the state of Minnesota, with the exception of just a couple, like Carleton College has always been non-sectarian private, really niche institutions like Minneapolis College of Art and Design. Almost all these schools originally had an explicitly religious um, mission were attached to a denomination or a church of some sort had some connection to Christianity. So if we think back to the theme of last week, why does the United States have so many colleges and universities? I mean, proportionally far more than places like the UK or Germany, it's partly because there is no established church here. And instead, religion in the United States in the 18th and especially 19th century is this Wild West free marketplace where lots of groups are competing with each other. And almost all of them see education in one way or another as part of their mission and ministry. And so even in you know, relatively small pockets of territory and population, you get multiple churches founding multiple colleges, universities that connect back to their mission. Um, so I mean, in the 19th century, the most active here are Catholics and Methodists, uh, dozens if not hundreds, but Lutherans and Presbyterians and Baptists and Adventists and Mennonites and to a lesser extent like the Episcopalians, they're all founding what become colleges and universities. Now, some were four-year schools all along. A lot of them started as a religious secondary school and or a seminary. Uh, we're at Bethel University, started as a small Swedish Baptist seminary in 1871. A high school was formed early in the 20th century, then they merged in 1914. And then by the uh, late 20th century, were a four-year college and then a kind of master's level graduate program. So most of these institutions started with some commitment to training clergy. That's a common theme running through most of them. Uh, clergy broadly defined. You know, some are seminaries training ordained clergy. Some it's like missionaries, church workers, worship leaders, people like that. But most of them also saw some value in training their lay people, the non-clergy, and sometimes for the sheer sake of learning. We'll talk about faith learning integration later. For some institutions, that's always been there. Uh, Sometimes it's to help immigrants both assimilate to American society, like Bethel Academy was founded to help Swedish immigrants learn English and pick up skills they could use to get jobs, while at the same time, it's a kind of... um, It's a kind of a safe place for immigrants to gather and, uh, in some cases, preserve their heritage and their distinctive traditions. So, for example, up into the 21st century, you could take Swedish at at Bethel. You no longer can, but I I have many memories of being in a classroom next to a room of people singing in Swedish. Very much so. My wife went to Luther College in Decora, Iowa, which is historically Norwegian. I think Norwegian is still offered as connections to the Vesterheim Museum of the Norwegian Immigrant Experience. Even though... If we're being honest, learning a language is very, very helpful. Yep. 
not all languages are equal in terms of how <laughs> helpful they are. I think Swedes will tell you why learn Swedish. <laughs> I think they would. All right. Now, so that that's kind of a common theme, broadly speaking, that describes the, the history of many of these places as they grow in different directions than the 20th and 21st century. But what we get are very different approaches to relating Christianity to higher education. And so if we look to the early 21st century, let me just sketch like three broad types of religious private four-year colleges and universities. And here too, I'll try to use some Minnesota examples because they're closest at hand, but I'll give you some other nationally known uh, examples. So let's start with, uh, in some ways, the most numerous, and that's Catholic higher education. So Sam, you mentioned that when you were applying to colleges, you did apply to Bethel. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that. But you also applied to two Catholic institutions, St. John's University, which is in kind of central Minnesota, and the University of Notre Dame in Indiana. Did you have some sense of what it meant to be going to a Catholic college or university based on your experience at a Catholic high school? Yeah, I mean, I think that was the main thing is I think I, think I assumed, um, and it's interesting because if, I, if you had asked me to describe, and I have your notes here in front of me, like what was distinctive about a, my Catholic school education compared to, say, friends I knew who went to public school or people I encountered at Bethel, or even the type of education I encountered at Bethel, is even though I went to a school that was taught by, I mean, I had teachers who were part of religious orders who were Cincinnati Dominican nuns, um, the focus was largely on um, ethics, mm-hmm. um, on kind of, I guess, understanding Catholic religion. And like, we went through our confirmation classes there. So like understanding the tenets of Catholic religion, but it was far more focused on ethics, morality. Um, so it's, and that is a version of faith in action. Sort Mm -hmm. of what does it mean to live a religious life? Um, what, what, what was not focused on, um, my experience, and again, this could be unique to my experience and the specific time I grew up in, was less of a focus on like, we didn't do a lot of hardcore theology. I was mm-hmm. probably behind my colleagues at Bethel, uh, my fellow students at Bethel, in terms of thinking theologically, but thinking morally, ethically, philosophically mm-hmm. about those things. I had a lot of that, a lot of ethics courses by the time I graduated from high school. Okay. Yeah, I think that sounds pretty familiar. And I'm, I'm looking at this as an outsider who's had family go to these schools and who knows some of the history. So let me just give you a few kind of talking points here. The first is there's variety within Catholic higher education. So the first thing to think about is, is the college or university diocesan, right? Is it controlled by the diocese, archdiocese, and the bishop of that diocese? Or is it related to a specific religious teaching order? So, for example, in the state of Minnesota, we've got the University of St. Thomas, which is run by the Archdiocese of St. Paul and always has been. So some of the interesting history of St. Thomas is that its key figure and the diocese's uh, key figure is John Ireland, who was the archbishop around the turn of the 20th century. John Ireland was very much part of a movement within Roman Catholicism trying to Americanize it, trying to demonstrate that Catholics could be good citizens, for example, and that, um, you know, it was still St. Thomas historically was Irish and Italian, but that they are assimilating to the mainstream, they can serve American society, that American values are consistent with Catholic values. So, for example, early on, St. Thomas was one of the first colleges in the country to have an ROTC unit, and it sent a lot of students and alumni into World War I. And had parades on campus to demonstrate its patriotism. So diocesan schools are meant to serve the needs of that territory, right? Whatever that might look like. Um, I worked at one in uh, kind of Western Connecticut as an adjunct after graduate school. 
Okay, the other type, though, are found by specific orders, and here they can reflect uh, what sometimes is called the specific uh, charism, the specific gift, the tradition of that order. In Minnesota, it's mostly Benedictine schools, St. John's, St. Benedict's, and then in Duluth, St. Scholastica. And so if you look at any of those websites, I guarantee you'll find some discussion of hospitality, right, as, as a classic Benedictine virtue that can have applications to education, that part of the job of a learning community is to be open to visitors, to guests, to learn from people who might come, whether that's by reading a book or bringing a guest speaker of some sort or bringing students who are not from that religion itself. Uh, but also there's the Salian Catholic, uh, uh, the Salian Order at St. Mary's down in Winona. Um, uh, Sisters of St. Carondale is a Miranda Rubens College called St. Catherine's that my wife went to for graduate school. It's got a health science kind of background to it. Notre Dame is maybe the most famous Catholic university of this type, and it's run by a small order called the College, Congregation of the Holy Cross, I think. To this day, a priest of that order is president of Notre Dame. This has changed over time. St. John's has not had a priest of the Benedictine order since 2012, I think, as its president. It's had lay presidents uh, ever since. So that that's one distinction to look for. But broadly, one common theme you'll find is that in some sense, the curriculum would seem very broad, right? You can be on a Catholic campus, and as a Catholic, you should study biology and evolutionary biology. You should study modern art. You should study business, right? Those are all things which, as a follower of Jesus Christ, you should study them. And here this is connected to doctrines like the incarnation, that Jesus himself, the word is made flesh. Um, words like sacramentality, Right? Just in the same way that bread and wine can take on divine meaning, the study of chemicals or the study of political science can take on uh, spiritual meaning. Right, like Those are themes that would allow you to study virtually anything, um, and yet it's still Christian, it's still Catholic in some sense. And maybe then a sense of, but there's also a unity of knowledge. And the way you would find this is that most uh, like general education curriculums on a Catholic campus would privilege philosophy and theology. I'm sure this isn't always true, but this is generally true. Like at University of St. Thomas and St. Paul, they just revised curriculum. It's a little bit smaller, but you still have to take, I think, 12 credits of philosophy and theology. Uh, Notre Dame had a huge fight about this about six or seven years ago. For a long time at Notre Dame, you had to take two philosophy and two theology classes. And about 80% of Notre Dame undergrads are Catholic, but 20% are not, but they still have to take those. And there was some discussion of maybe that's too much philosophy, right? But the philosopher said, but this is core, right? This is, um, this is how we find the unity of knowledge. And this is how we bring together both natural law through reason and divine law through faith. And uh, what they came to is a compromise. You still have to take two theology classes. Um, and I'll come back to that. Only one required philosophy, and then you can do an alternative, what's called, I think it's Catholicism across the disciplines. So you could encounter the Catholic tradition through art or through literature or through theater, but you still had to have explicitly Catholic sources as part of the mix. And so you at least have to learn about Catholicism even if you are not Catholic yourself. And then in theology, um, it's not necessarily indoctrination. Uh, it's not dogmatic or sectarian. Often theology is taken as having a constructive critical task. Like it, it's actually meant to ask hard questions about the faith and it's meant to engage with other religions as a common theme. 
No, this can vary. There's some very uh, conservative Catholic institutions like Franciscan University in Ohio or Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. are more traditionally conservative. But many others, especially like Jesuit schools, have been strongly influenced by liberation theology or by interfaith dialogue. And so there's quite a bit of diversity there, too. And then finally, I'd say the themes to look for that would be taken as evidence of the Catholic tradition is partly what Sam talked about, ethics. Above all else, there's some sense of whatever your personal faith, you are going to reflect on what is your ethical tradition? What, what does it mean to put your faith in action? And then other themes like, I think, vocation is one that's very common. And especially more recently, since Vatican II, social justice is something you'd hear a lot in most Catholic institutions. A lot of that would also be true then for a different type, which is mainline Protestant schools. And so Lutheran, Presbyterian, Methodist, uh, American Baptist, Episcopalian, uh, Moravian, Disciples in Christ, uh, lots of different kinds of schools. But the, these are historically um, uh, denominations that are influenced by liberal or neo-Orthodox theology and their approach to Christian higher education in some ways sounds like the Catholic one. So my wife, for example, went to a Lutheran college called Luther College. It's uh, one of about two dozen associated with the ELCA, the biggest Lutheran denomination. Uh, at Luther College, there's no expectation that students are Christian or that faculty are Christian. But you still take religion classes, and there still is spiritual life, and there are chapel services being held. And I think, at least up till recently, at least some of the trustees had to be Lutheran, or I don't think the president still has to be Lutheran, but often it's a Lutheran. Um, so there are a couple ways of thinking about this. There's a Lutheran scholar named Robert Benny who taught at Roanoke College in Virginia, a Lutheran school for a long time. He said one version of this is what's called the critical mass. And the idea is that um, it's a kind of college that's open to everyone, but a certain percentage of the students are going to be of that denomination or a certain percentage of the faculty or at least like the theology faculty or a share of the administration are so that you've still got, it's not like what it was 100 years ago when it was all one denomination immigrant group, but it's still got at least a kind of critical mass of that that's still guiding curriculum decisions leadership. But he also said sometimes you get what he called pluralist forms, where intentionally that church has kind of released control of the curriculum of hiring. Um, it doesn't assume that its students are going to go to those schools anymore. And he says this can happen intentionally or accidentally. You know, it can happen accidentally because you need to recruit different kinds of students, and so you drop what are called faith screens. It can happen intentionally because you decide that one way of living out love of neighbor or a sense of the unity of all truth is to consciously invite in atheist and Hindu faculty and to invite in Muslim students because they're from your community. That's, I think, largely the mission of Augsburg University, which is historically Norwegian Lutheran, but it's right in kind of next to downtown Minneapolis. It wants to reflect the concerns and the demographics of its community. And so it doesn't seem Lutheran in like a 19th century sense. And yet, I mean, I think if you went to a place like Augsburg or St. Olaf is historically Norwegian or Gustavus Adolphus, I mean, they would say they are still colleges of the church. In some sense, they're still connected organizationally to a denomination. To some extent, they're still training people for ministry, so they'll have connections to seminaries. Um, but they would say they don't quite fit um, the sort of pattern we'll talk about with Bethel, where there's going to be a faith screen of some sort, and it's an intentionally Christian community. Well, I think this conversation is helpful. Again, I'm just going to I'm going to just hint towards the fit conversation. Like what we're talking about here is very 
real to the day-to-day life of that school, mm-hmm. but it's also maybe not the thing you're going to read in uh, promotional literature. You're not going to hear what you just described laid out, but a student might look at that and say, that's actually what I want. Oh, yeah. You know, or you might say, that's not what I'm looking like, yeah. But But so I think I think where we're getting to is like, what are the what are the the questions or information that would help you pick a place that's really a good fit? So I mean that, that that's where we're headed. But I think I want to point out that um, kind of what you're saying feeds into that conversation. Yeah. No. I, I hopefully if you've been listening this week and last week too, part of and even the week before, part of what you're doing is kind of taking notes and getting a clearer sense of a what do you want out of college. That was our second episode. What are the kinds of colleges out there? And then we'll start to put pieces together next week and the following week. So then how do you find a good fit? How do you decide what a good value in college is going to be? Last thing I'll say here about mainline or um, institutions, because it'll set up a contrast with a different sort of Protestant institution. This comes from Daryl Jodok, Jodok, who is a longtime religion professor at Gustavus Dolphus, a Luther, Swedish Lutheran historically school in Minnesota. And he gave a talk to ELCA bishops once where he said, what's different about Lutheran, but I think generally most mainline colleges, is they're not sectarian, right? They're not trying to reflect, to, to, um, to have a certain kind of community bounded by a certain set of beliefs, uh, binding the faculty to those beliefs. But they also, he said, are not non-sectarian, right? It's not that religion is something that they're hostile to or trying to stay away from, and it's something in between, and so it doesn't quite fit if your notion of the choices are, well, the University of Minnesota on one hand, or uh, the schools we're about to talk about, Bethel, Northwestern, Crown, explicitly uh, religious institutions that call themselves Christian colleges and they have some kind of faith screen. And so it can be a sort of awkward fit if those are the two poles you've grown up thinking about to then come to a place like a Lutheran or a Presbyterian or a Methodist school. Okay, so let, let's turn to Bethel. How do evangelical Protestants, uh, and that, I could have a whole episode just defining that, but how do more theologically conservative Protestants, and especially historically, these are Baptists, Pietists, Pentecostals, uh, holiness, Christians of different sorts, how do they approach higher education? So some of these are church-related colleges, uh, still associated with the denomination, like Bethel is. Some of them are not. Uh, down the road from us is a very similar school called the University of Northwestern St. Paul, It was founded by a pastor of a very conservative Baptist church in Minneapolis. It's never been associated with a denomination. Maybe the most famous kind of college like this is Wheaton College uh, in suburban Chicago. It's never been associated with a denomination. So you have both of those kinds. But broadly, what do they have in common? First of all, and here's the big difference, they have an explicitly Christian faculty and perhaps an explicitly Christian student body. Now, I'd say the student body one is a little bit in flux, and even some of these places, it's never been true. Like, I grew up in the Covenant Church, and the Covenant has one college called North Park on the north side of Chicago. It has never had what's called a faith screen for students. Now, it's tended early on to attract Covenanters, Lutherans, other Christians, especially Protestants, especially nowadays, uh, Muslims, Hindus, Catholics, non-Christians, spiritual but not religious people go there. Um, Same is true of like Seattle Pacific in the Pacific Northwest. Um, A lot of these schools now have loosened this, partly because they've set up adult programs that didn't have the faith screen, and now their undergraduate programs might not have it, and they might be trying consciously to recruit, um, for example, Muslim students who don't share the same faith commitments, but want a very strong ethical component to education or want a certain kind of community or they want a place where faith is taken seriously and related to learning. 
a faculty is a different story. It's generally true. There's going to be some sort of expectation that faculty are Christian, are trying to relate their faith to their field of learning, to their teaching. This can take different forms, and it's very contentious. Uh, for example, at Baylor University is probably the biggest version of what I'm talking about. Um, and there was a sense early in the 21st century that Baylor had drifted from its Baptist identity and a new president tried to bring it back, but not all faculty had been brought in with that understanding. And so there is a lot of difficult conversations about what does it mean to be a Baylor professor that just flared up again in like local newspapers earlier this year. Is Baylor intentionally Christian? Are we actually forming faculty to, to put their Christian commitments in practice? That debate happens. But there is some degree that it's a thoroughly Christian community and it's curriculum. So these schools would not only require Bible, theology, maybe religion classes, um, but throughout the curriculum in majors and minors, in gen ed, uh, there would be some sense that faith and learning are supposed to be related to each other. And so like this is, I think, hard to understand in some disciplines. Like what does it mean to teach math as a Christian, right? Is there a Christian way of doing math? Is there a Christian way of doing chemistry? Is there a Christian way of doing accounting or nursing? You know, in some fields, it might seem like, well, yeah, I can understand like how Christianity might shape how you would interpret history or think about ethics or metaphysics or something. I think it's a little harder to understand. And so that's maybe a good question to ask is I'm interested in math. I could go to the U of M's math department where a friend of mine teaches who's not a Christian, but I also kind of want to be in a Christian environment. What difference would it make to go to a place like Bethel if I'm going to primarily study mathematics, right? That might be a question to think about for that fit conversation we're going to have. Uh, and then finally, um, some of these places still have a pretty strong commitment of preparing people for Christian ministry, broadly defined, and especially some smaller non-accredited schools that are kind of not on our radar for this conversation. They are mostly pre-ministry programs. But I think even where that's no longer as true as it used to be, there's still a pretty strong sense that the job of the college is to send out um, people who are strong in their faith, who can be Christian witnesses in the government, in politics, in the community, in the business world, and who have a maybe Christian worldview is a phrase you'll hear a lot, who think Christianly about being an accountant, about being a politician, about being a military officer, about being a social worker or a nurse. And so even though it's not ministry as we might want to think of it, there's still a sense of um, your belief in Christ shapes what you do with your life. And part of the job of the college is to prepare you to make those connections. So there's a, a very rough, very broad three-part typology of these are all Christian, right? Um, although I, I think they sometimes question that when they look at each other and, and might malign the other models. But they're all emerging from sense of thinking, what does it look like to take Christian community, Christian belief, Christian practice, uh, and put it into higher education? And we get all these different models. So I don't know if we've just muddied the waters further, if we've actually clarified things for people. I, honestly, I mean, I, I realize I haven't done a lot of talking in this episode, but it's because I actually find this really interesting to think about. You know, especially if I'm a, if I'm these are these are distinctions that I would not have had when I was a high school senior. You know, to think about, um, I mean, I knew I was going to a Christian college when I went to Bethel, um, but I, I wouldn't have had any of the categories to say, um, how is this different than Northwestern, which I didn't know existed, mm -hmm. or Wheaton, which I didn't know existed. Mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't have, ha I wouldn't have had that. And actually, you know, um, it, it's it's fascinating to to think about these things and then reflect on sort of the nature of the education and some of the things that you know, potentially cause tension in terms of like, 
you know, I think about students at a place like Bethel, which fits into that third category. There are some students who are here because their parents have sent them here to be like, well, this is going to be a safe space. Uh, and I think it is a safe space depending on what you mean by safe. Absolutely. So here I think we want to close by looking at some of these tensions with that third category. And I think we want to do that because it's the world we know best. We highly value it. We've chosen to make it our place of work and purpose in many ways. Uh, so I want to be extra intentional about thinking um, a little critically about this and naming some of the complexities and some of those tensions. So here's one. Um, what does it mean to be a safe place? Right. Um, so, for example, for a long time in higher ed, the idea was that the college was going to behave in loco parentis, in place of the parent. And so for a long time, almost all colleges would regulate the behavior of students, what they were exposed to. And then this starts to go away, except at some of these religious schools. And this is true of all categories, but especially that third category. Right, that there were certain things that the college was still going to pay attention to because the parent wasn't there. And that would reassure the parent that their child was going to be in a safe place that resembled the home they'd grown up in, the church they'd grown up in. That's not always what a student needs at that point in their life. There's a reason I did not apply to any of these kinds of schools. I was looking for something very different because I wanted to break out of that and try something new. And I'm not really sure Bethel thinks of itself or these schools as being in the place of the parents anymore. Right. Now, and, and I think you can interpret that even in loco parentis in a couple of ways. Like, are we here to keep our students safe? Well, physically safe, right. I would hope so, yeah. right? But but intellectually safe, like this, I would hope you co- I would hope everybody goes to college to encounter ideas that are going to challenge them and push them and lead them to grow. Um is that intellectually safe? Well, it is if, I mean, the, the, the model that we always talk about here is challenge and support. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, we're going to push you on this idea to think about this, but we're not leaving you out to dry. It's like, we're going we're gonna to come alongside you and help you process, okay, here's an idea you hadn't thought about before that maybe challenges the way you thought previously, mm-hmm. right? And that's different than indoctrination, right? right? And I, well, what's interesting is students, you can have, two students sitting in the same class and one of them feels like this is this kind of challenge and support and I'm being pushed but I'm also being led to expand and to think for myself and understand these things while the person next to them can be saying this is just indoctrination you're just telling me what to think right. you know and you can have another student saying you know this is unsafe like like this so 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 I really do think you want to think about that question like like what what is the what do you think the purpose of of even the sort of broad-based education, regardless, forget about major or what you're studying, because every major should push you. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I guess I'm putting my cards on the table. I am in the, the firmly in the camp of like, this should push you to kind of break the way you think a little bit in order to rebuild it as your own way of thinking. Now, you may come up with the same answers, right. but you're going to hold those answers very differently. Yeah, I mean, I, so here's, here's a different version of the tension I think you're getting at, Sam, which is, On the one hand, I think Bethel and schools like it want to be able to reassure parents, don't worry, these faculty believe something like what you believe. And that's true. And we both sign this statement every single year, and it's absolutely true. At the same time, we don't only teach our beliefs in the classroom. In fact, we go out of our way to teach a wide variety of beliefs, partly because we know we're standing in. We don't have like the religious diversity you would find at other kinds of private, let alone public universities, And we think it is important 
for our Christian students to, in a phrase you hear a lot at places like this, make their faith their own. Right. And I actually think that's what makes us an evangelical and a Baptist and a pietist place is that we come from Christian traditions that don't think that the religion can just be passed on kind of like as a family inheritance. It can't just be absorbed from the culture. It can't just be a kind of custom. It requires a level of willful choice and decision. It requires kind of maybe seeing what the options are, making a commitment of some sort. Uh, and, and that happens often kind of at this age, right? Between 18 to 24 or so. Like it's when you're figuring out who you are as an independent person and you can't do that if all you're exposed to then is this very narrow band of options saying conform to it. And so that's hard. Like I understand why parents then get worried when they hear, well, but I heard this idea, right? And that doesn't sound like what I grew up with. And I think students have a very wide range of responses to this. Some of them thrive on that and they come alive. Some of them don't know what to do with that. And so I think a second piece here is like, there's a reason why these tend to be smaller schools. And one is that this works best if you have a sense of trust. I mean, if, if parents are going to trust that they can put their children into, in a sense, our hands, knowing that they're going to be challenged, but also they'll be supported, I think that's a lot easier in relatively small class sizes, in relatively small communities that often are residential, and you get to know each other really well, even outside of the classroom. I think it'd be really hard in a much larger university to have that same degree of trust. Like, how do you get to know faculty or coaches or resident assistants that way? So I think that that's one way in which it often works is you just learn to trust the people who are involved. Um, and the final kind of tension I'll say here, and it kind of, it's just another way of saying things we've already been talking about. Do you want your Christian college to be a citadel, a fortress where you go to be protected from the forces of the world? Or is it actually a bridge to the world? And it's probably both. Um, in some senses, this is, I think, the safe place idea. I don't want to send my child, you might think, to the University of Minnesota where it's a big, confusing place with lots of ideas. It's not safe in many respects, right? The behaviors are very different. The ideas are, are complicated and, and diverse. I want to send them to a place where I can trust it's Christian, they're with Christians, right? But at the same time, people like you and me, Sam, probably see ourselves as bridging some of these divides. Like we're preparing people to go out into the world and we relate uh, faith to action, belief to science, um, church to state, all these different things. We even do things like interfaith dialogue, like we're a Christian, but we want you to get to know Muslims and Buddhists and atheists and understand how they think at the same time. I think both are true in a sense, but that can be a hard kind of tension to inhabit. And it can be, I think, scary for, for parents and for students. Um, but understand it's coming from the Christian mission. Like I, I think that relates back to the idea then of helping students make their faith their own, prepare them to go out into the world where they are going to spend most of their life. Right, they're not going to spend it within this kind of citadel sort of environment. So this is just, I think we're just scratching the surface of lots of topics we'll come back to in various ways, whether we're talking about curriculum or about how you understand value or next week, I think it is time to come back to this question of fit because you hear this all the time in college admissions. Like this is what drives decisions as much as anything. Some sense of I fit here or I don't fit here. And so it's a good place to pause, maybe put some of these pieces together and, and help our listeners ask questions that would help them understand, is this a good fit or not? Why do I feel this way? How can I interrogate that? So come back next time and we will take up the concept of fit in higher education. Mm -hmm.